0: So today we're uh, continuing our fall sermon series called Rockstar, the David Saga. This is really a little novella about the life of David tucked into the Hebrew Bible. The Yale scholar Harold Bloom calls King David the most compelling protagonist in all of Western literature, and if that's true... It's because the Hebrew historian looks at David's life from all these different angles and all these different perspectives and all of David's various roles. David, of course, was a shepherd and a songwriter. He was a warrior, a giant slayer. He was a father and a husband and obviously a king. And on Stewardship Sunday, conveniently for me, David was also a philanthropist. So this story, which comes from the end of David's life, 1 Chronicles 29, King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is very large, for the temple will not be for mortals, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the Lord, uh, my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold and the silver for the things of silver and the bronze for the things of bronze and the iron for the things of iron. And in addition, I have provided for the Holy House a treasure of my own of gold and silver, 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of silver for overlaying the walls of the house who then among the rest of you will offer willingly, consecrating themselves today to the Lord? And then the leaders of ancestral houses made their free will offerings, as did all the leaders of the tribes, and they gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And then David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. He said, Blessed are you, O Lord, O Lord God of our ancestors, forever and ever. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to make this free will offering? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. Then after 40 years, the reign of David, son of Jesse, came to an end and he died at a good old age full of days, riches, and honor. And his son Solomon succeeded him And the lesson from the Hebrew Psalter this morning is Psalm 84, which was written in praise of the great Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So there's this wonderful story about David's philanthropy, which happens near the end of his life. Here's how this all goes down. David is about 70 years old at this point and has been reigning as king of Israel for about 40 years and he knows that his death is soon to come and he wants to wrap up some loose ends before he leaves this earth. And so he decides he wants to build a temple for the God of Israel and conveniently he's going to locate this temple right next to his palace. In the ancient Near East, you see there was no enfeebling separation between church and state. There was a fast wedding between church and state. A common strategy among tribal chieftains in baby nation states in the ancient Near East was to put the palace next to the temple and to make sure the people know that when God wants to communicate with God's people, God does so through the king of the nation. So this uh, king of Israel was both a sovereign regent and a high priest, common strategy in the ancient Near East. So God tell, uh, David tells God about David's plans, but God says, I don't want you to build me a temple, David. You are a warrior. There's too much blood on your hands. It's your son Solomon who will build the temple for me. Before he goes out in a blaze of glory, though, David decides that he's going to raise the money. And I want to look with you at David's fundraising strategy here because I think it's a good strategy for our own own stewardship campaign. David asks and answers the three central questions of every stewardship campaign, of all philanthropy, who, what, and why. Who should give, asks David. David answers, I should give. What should you give, asks David. David answers, a lot. Why should you give? David answers, because it all comes from God in the first place. So that first question of stewardship, who should give? I should give, says David. The first thing to notice about David's philanthropy is that David leads with his pocket. That's the hardest way to lead, isn't it? David leads with his pocket. King David and his son and heir apparent Solomon are the two most prominent protagonists in this little story, and they each exercise leadership in different ways. David is a temple funder, and Solomon is a temple builder. David raises the money, and Solomon is the one who actually constructs the edifice. Every religious organization needs those two types of leadership, temple funders and temple builders. Laura Linger is a temple builder. She's the one who does the work around here. Sally Smith is a temple builder. Tom and Cindy, temple builders. Becky Knight, temple builders. They actually do the work around here. Diana Connolly, Sunday school teacher extraordinaire is a temple builder. She's probably not here because she's in the classroom teaching our kids. Now, all of these people might be temple funders too. I don't know about that. That's mostly secret, but I know that they are at least temple builders. But maybe you don't want to be a temple builder. Maybe you can't name the four gospels and don't know which testament the book of Deuteronomy is in, so you can't teach Sunday school. Maybe you'd rather have a root canal than sit through a long board meeting. That's okay, you can be a temple funder. (laughs) It's best to be both, but at least choose one. Temple funder, temple builder. Are you a leader? Some of you are. 10% of our families contribute over 50% of our operating budget every year. That's 60 families who underwrite more than half of our ministry. 60 families, 50%. Those are scary numbers. That first number is too small, and the second number is too large. Last year, 637 families out of a total of about 1,000 on our rolls made a gift to the church. It takes $2 million a year to run this place, to keep the lights on, to pay the staff, to heat the building in January, and to replace at least one of the light. Ten air conditioning units on the roof of this building 637 pledges two million dollars so you can do the math to be faithful to God's call to us in this place we need an average pledge of thirty two hundred dollars not all of you will be able to give that much but a lot of you will be able to give way 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 more Bev Lang tells me that one guy in the church increased his pledge from $55,000 last year to $60,000 this year. Now that's leading with his pocket. He's a temple funder. He's never here. He doesn't teach Sunday school. He's never been on the board. I don't think he's ever served on a committee. But he underwrites our ministry. He leads with his pocket. So, if you can't give $3,200 a year, start somewhere. Start anywhere. Start with 20 bucks a week. And then you can increase that figure 10 or 20% every year. And after 20 or 30 years, you'll be surprised how much your philanthropy has grown in 1960 a bright young man with a great mind but minimal interest in schoolwork graduated from the high school in medford massachusetts with mediocre grades he was capable of a's but he always brought home c's but he had a gift for mathematics And he worked part-time at an electronics company in Medford, Massachusetts. And his boss, the owner of the store, took a liking to this young man. And she said, you know, you ought to apply for admission at my alma mater, Johns Hopkins University. And so he applied, even with his inferior transcript, and perhaps because of the kindly intervention of his boss, he was admitted to Johns Hopkins. This guy is 76 years old today. He says, let's be serious. Johns Hopkins took a chance on me. So in 1964, the first year after he graduated, he wanted to make a modest contribution to this university that had taken a chance on him, and so he gave $5. That was all he could afford, $5. It all worked out for this young man and for Johns Hopkins. He got A's at Johns Hopkins and went on to a splendid career. So this $5 gift was 50 years ago. A couple of years ago, same guy gave Johns Hopkins University $300 million, which brought his total contribution to that university up to $1.5 billion. They say that Johns Hopkins would be unrecognizable without these contributions from the former mayor of New York City, the guy whose name is probably all over your computer screen if you work at BMO or Blair or Northern Trust. He's given a physics building, a school for public health, a children's hospital, a stem cell research institute, a malaria institute, a library wing, and funding for 20% of the need-based scholarships for students at Johns Hopkins. It started with a $5 gift from a 22-year-old kid. Michael Bloomberg is 76 years old today, about the same age as David is when this story takes place, and acting just like him. He plans to give away every last penny of his $50 billion fortune before he dies. So David gives the right answer to stewardship's first question. Who should give? I should give. Also the second question, what should you give? A lot. Now, Solomon's temple was not a huge edifice. According to the Bible, it was about 180 feet long, 90 feet wide, and 50 feet tall. Conveniently, about exactly the same size as the footprint of this building and about as tall as our steeple. It wasn't huge, but it was covered with precious metals and gems, right? The Chronicle chronicler tells us that David collected 3,700 tons of gold and 33,000 tons of silver. By today's precious metal evaluations, that would make the temple worth about $217 billion. Now, clearly the chronicler is exaggerating. Today, the most expensive building in the world is about $15 billion. The Freedom Tower in New York, $3.8 billion. A couple of years ago, Blackstone bought the Willis Tower for $1.3 billion. Someone calculated that if the Chronicler is correct, Solomon's Temple used 1 30th of all the gold that's ever been mined from the earth in the history of the world. And to put that in a different way, that means that all the gold mined from the earth and the history of the world could only build 30 of these buildings. It's probably an exaggeration, but it was a magnificent structure, the eighth wonder of the ancient world. And so David answers all these stewardship questions right. Who should give? I should give. What should I give? A lot. Why should I give? Because it all belongs to God in the first place. David says... For all things come from you, great God, and of your own have we given to you, for we are aliens and transients before you as were all our ancestors. That is to say, we are guests on this earth and stewards of the resources of the Creator who spins the flying planets and ignites the burning stars. It does not belong to us. We are managing it for somebody else. And so your gift to the church, your gift to CSO, or to the Lyric, or to your alma mater, or to the United Way, this is all just re-gifting. Re-gifting gets a bad rap in our world. You re-gift something when somebody gives you a tasteless Christmas gift, and you leave it in the packaging and pass it along to somebody else as if that were your original idea. You are re-gifting. But maybe we ought to restore re-gifting's reputation. Because that's all it is with our philanthropy, right? God has given it to us, and we are regifting gifting what we have been given to our neighbors and friends, to the community. When I was serving the Westminster Presbyterian Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the congregation sponsored a refugee family from Russia. They had been devout Baptists in Russia. And in the 1990s, during the dying days of the Soviet Union and the rebirthing years of the new Russia, devout Baptists were severely persecuted. So my friends Peter and Lilia, I've told you about them before, Peter and Lilia ended up in the United States and in Grand Rapids, Michigan, with people from my congregation. And one Sunday at worship, I told the congregation that Peter and Lilia needed a new car. And that afternoon... At home, my friend Greg Decker called me. Some of you have met my friend Greg Decker. Greg Decker calls me at home and tells me that the church can have his car. At the time, Greg Decker was 32 years old. He had two little kids. I had no idea that he had the means to give the church such a generous gift. A car that was worth probably eight or $9,000 dollars. But I guess Greg heard the voice of God telling him to give his car to the church, to Peter and Lilia. But here's some advice. You should always sleep on these kinds of decisions. Greg came to visit me at the office on Monday morning to hand me the keys to his car, and he looked a little bit dazed. I think he was maybe a little surprised by his own generosity, and maybe just a little regretful. Maybe he didn't think he had the means to make such a generous gift. And know most of the time when we're more generous than we ought to be, it gives us great joy, but I think, to be honest, in this case, it gave Greg more anxiety than joy. And so Greg shared his anxiety with his father, and his father just said, matter-of-factly, wisely, there will be other cars. Yes. So we give with abandon because it all comes originally from God in the first place. We give with abandon because there will always be another car. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.